virtually every major retailer now reports on these things called alternative revenue or alternative profits when they post their their earnings every quarter. And in fact, they've come to the same realization, which is that retail may actually just be a means to an end and that the end may actually be better knowledge about your customer and how you can best monetize that knowledge in a way that keeps the customer wanting to keep engaging with you because you've made their lives in some way better. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back for another fun episode. Today, I have for you Nishat Mehta, who is President of Global Products and Solutions, over at IRI. And if you're not familiar with IRI, it's a leading provider of big data, predictive analytics, and forward-looking insights that help CPG, that's consumer packaged goods, and over-the-counter healthcare retailers and media companies to grow their businesses. Now, back to Nishat, he has spent 25 years helping organizations identify ways to generate alternative revenue streams through data, insights, and media. He's also served in senior leadership roles over at 8451, Don Humby, and MicroStrategy. And by the way, he actually has a BA in Applied Mathematics and a MS, that's a Master's of Science in Computer Science from Harvard University. Nishat, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. We're going to have a good one today. Now, what's your favorite story of thinking big. You know, I um, <clears throat> so I I started my career about twenty five years ago. Um, first day on the job, uh, twenty one year old, um, working for MicroStrategy, and the CEO had a um, a process whereby for every new boot camp, as we called the intro classes, he would uh, give his opening speech, and it was a multi hour speech. It, it it really did feel as though he was trying to create a culture. Hmm. And um, the speech focused on a company's mission and a mission needed to be big. And uh, the argument, you know, he would use a couple of examples. Um, you know, Coke's mission is not to make sugar water, it's to quench thirst. And that's what would allow hmm. them to expand into water and coffee drinks and et cetera, as they've proceeded to do. Boeing's mission was not to <clears throat> make airplanes, it was to shrink the world. And so as he started to get into what MicroStrategy's mission was, I remember he he built up this long story and then he ultimately ended ended it with so microstrategy's mission is to purge ignorance and he paused mm-hmm. for effect and um i think there were a number of us in the room there were sort of two reactions right there was one reaction which was the 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 sort of the hubris of this individual and thinking that he's running a company that could purge ignorance and then there's the 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds that are, you know, big picture thinking, they're excited, they're, you know, first job out of school, 
where we're just blown away by the idea that we just joined a company that potentially could purge ignorance. And I, I will always remember the value of, uh, of, of creating a mission that seems so much bigger than the team. Even if it feels somewhat preposterous, it creates a North Star that focused everything we did. And everything we did was focused on the idea of, can we make uh, information systems so easy to use that anyone could ask any question and get the answer that they were looking for, which was ultimately the path to purging ignorance. Um, wow. I can't say I've re- repeated that in every job that I've held, but it certainly is an aspiration for me as Fantastic. well. Fantastic. And so looking at IRI today and how you're leading your team, what's the what's the big idea or what's the, I guess, the thinking big vision? So, you know, um, with IRI, we focus very much on a variety of sectors. So um, we've recently merged with a company called the NPD Group, and the combined company actually understands consumer spend for about $4 trillion worth of spend uh, globally. Mm-hmm. And so we we understand a lot about the consumer, what they buy in a grocery store, what they buy in a department store, what they'll buy at a Best Buy or consumer electronics, what they buy online, that kind of thing. And so the big idea from our perspective is, in, in at least what I try to tell the team is, is never forget who you work for. And I don't mean the mm. company you work for, but rather that we serve the consumer. Everything we do is created by virtue of the fact that the consumer allows it to exist. Um, I specifically look after uh, you know, a media business. Advertising doesn't exist if every consumer decides to install ad blockers or if every consumer decides to fast forward through commercials. And so Remembering that what we do needs to ultimately Mm -hmm. benefit the consumer, needs to pass, as I call it, the mom test. Could I explain to my mother why what I do is good for her? Uh, I think that's a lens through which I want my entire team to always think about the decisions that they make. And, uh, you know, very specific example, um, we could choose to provide Pepsi with a targeted audience of loyal Coke buyers. But is that really a good thing to do? Is that something that the Coke buyer, the recipient, the consumer would actually appreciate? Or would they look at it as why in the world am I being advertised a product I don't even like because I choose to always buy their competitor? And so we actually decline those kinds of opportunities, what we refer to as conquesting campaigns. And we would never allow a competitor to target loyal buyers of their competitive product because it just doesn't feel like what's right for the consumer. And it might be a short-term win, uh, a short-term boost in revenue, but long-term it weakens the overall ecosystem that we need to survive in order for our business to thrive. What a powerful leadership strategy. Number one, to make it so simple, never forget who we're working for here and really grounding your actions in that North Star. And then I love the passing the mom test just to give you that because it really goes beyond ethics to just common sense in terms of how you treat people by grounding in, in, in someone that we have, most people have a lot of trust in and we want to make one, our, our and, parents and proud. That's right. Um, I remember somebody saying to me one time, it was similar to the mom test. It was the 60 minutes test. If you were being interviewed on 60 minutes and they asked you about a business decision that you made, how comfortable would you be explaining yourself? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That, that feels a bit more stick like than the mom test, which might be more carrot like, but you're right. Very (laughs) similar. Would your mom be proud of you or would you be completely shamed and embarrassed by 60 minutes? Yeah. (laughs) No, it's, 
it's a great way to, to really think about that. And I love the idea of this. Um, you'd seen the power of this in your first, in your first job and how you have really kind of taken that idea about purging ignorance and made it even more, I think, accessible to employees by making it so darn actionable. Because I think it's one thing to sort of cast the vision, but it's another to make it so simple that your employees can can action upon that. One of the things that comes to mind right now is, and we've I've had a lot of leaders on here from the uh, chief artificial and intelligence officer, the first the, the first AI officer of IBM. Um, the uh, executive who founded the Responsible AI Institute, uh, Manoj Shaksena, who was also the person that w- was the first GM of Watson, the supercomputer over at IBM, and we're just and we're really speeding into and Chat GPT just just came on board about a month ago, and we're really speeding towards an exciting time in, in data, but it seems like there's a lot of caveats from you and your business. And I just love the 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 simple ethical lens that you're providing to. How are you leading your team in an age of accelerated machine learning and artificial intelligence? Um, differently every day, maybe the first <laughs> answer. <laughs> it changes so quickly. Um, I tend to agree with you. This chat GPT thing is is amazing and scary at the same time. Um we have. Uh, I, I think the the right way to think about all of this is um, is, is empathy. Uh, it, it's a it's a term I use with my team quite frequently. It's frankly a term I use with my kids a lot. Uh, and the thinking for me is, it is quite possibly the last thing to get written into code is, is empathy. Um, and therefore, if I'm raising my kids to have a job for the next fifty years they better have some empathy or else everything else that they have probably at some point gets replaced by a machine. And I think what I mean by empathy is truly the ability to understand the uh, the specifics about an individual as opposed to the stereotype of that individual that might cause them to react to something differently uh, than, than you might. Um, I also believe empathy has a lot to do with appreciating that you yourself are limited in your ability to feel the way someone else does. And at some point, Hmm. you need to use your curiosity to better understand how somebody might be in a situation that you've never potentially experienced before. Um, For anyone that's a parent, Hmm. I know the first month of my kids, first kid's life, I probably apologize to every one of my parent friends for how bad of a friend I was, uh, because you just simply can't appreciate the feelings that go through the tiredness you feel all the things that are that exist in that first month two three months of life until you go through it yourself and and appreciating that uh we don't actually know everything uh in, in induces us to be more curious uh when interacting with others where we can potentially learn uh what brings them what 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 is most important to them uh, and so that becomes, I think, a really important uh, lesson. One, in order, in, in, just in terms of how we interact with consumer data, we're sitting on a lot of data that has a lot of power to do good. It also has a lot mm-hmm. of power to not do good, and uh, we need to be on the right side of that. And so, recognizing that is really important. And then, as we think about the unwritten rules, the rules that have yet to be created on how to use data. We can't necessarily go to some book that that tells us what to do. And I think that's where we've got to start using our own lens 
to think about how, how that again goes back to the mom test. How would I feel? How would my mother feel uh, if I did this to them? Would I be able to explain this to somebody as to why I'm using their data this way and how it benefits them? Wow. I love that saying um, empathy is coded in last. Meaning that a great way to put getting it. to a certain getting to a certain action, trying to get a certain result, coding for quality and efficiency and impact, but empathy is the last thing, and it's so important to recognize that. And so it, it gives you a strategic advantage, of course, if you're thinking about this earlier in the process versus later. Uh, what are yeah. what are some ways? Uh, or advice for leaders that you know they maybe they're working with a third party to collect data maybe they have you know they, they probably have some relationships where they're not necessarily even aware of all the data that's being collected on their customers but they've partnered with someone and they're seeing a lot of this accelerated uh, uh machine learning or artificial intelligence coming on board what are the questions that you think leaders should be thinking about or even asking other organization right now? Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, so there's, there's kind of the basics of data collection. Uh, and when I say the basics, I mean, you know, the consumer needs to have choice and control. Uh, so they need to have choice, meaning I choose to allow you to have this data or not. And that choice needs to be recurring. It, it cannot be something I chose to do years ago and then have never been given a chance again to uh, to change my mind. And the control needs to include once I've given you the data, I have the right to take it back if something, you know, if my mind has changed. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, loyalty cards um, become a, a, a core source of data collection for us. And one of the reasons why I really like the notion of loyalty cards is because that choice and control is always there. The choice is, is something where you can sign up for the loyalty program, but unless you present your loyalty card or type in your phone number, each individual transaction is not collected by the retailer, hmm. or at least not attached to you as an, as an individual. And so you make the choice each time you check out whether or not you want that hmm. data to be available to you. And the, the hmm. retailer makes the choice to say, if you make the data available to me, I'll give you a discount. I'll give you differential pricing. Like in a grocery store, you type in your 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 number and you get a discount. That's right. But they That's don't right. track it if because they're not tracking it by, per your credit card necessarily. That So, so you, you bring up a great example hmm. because the loyalty card allows me to have exact control over each transaction. If I decide I'm going to buy a sin product, a, a, a pack of cigarettes or, or an embarrassing product, um, you know, adult diapers, I can just choose at that point to not present my loyalty card. And that data is never attached to me as an individual. So I always have the choice at every single transaction, whether I want this data to be shared, as opposed to the example you just brought up, what's referred to in our industry as traceable tender, which is the idea that my credit card is associated with me and that by using my credit card at a retailer, the retailer has the ability to then use the merchant bank uh, or the issuing bank to actually mm -hmm. be able to attach uh, personal information to the transaction without my control. My only option in that point is to pay cash, um, which, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a very fair choice for the consumer. And so th that's a perfect example where one way of collecting to me feels 
empathetic. It feels ethical. It feels right. It's a trade between the user and the and the retailer where the user maintains complete choice and control mm-hmm. versus an alternative option, which is the opposite of that. And we are very uh, explicit in the way in which we collect data. We do the first, we don't do the second. Yeah, fantastic. Some great ways to think about that. I think all the leaders can benefit because all companies are coming up on this. If you're not really tracking customer data and all that, well, you will be soon. Uh, and probably your suppliers are tracking you. So it'd be you great know, to be one, asking that question of them. One one really interesting comment on that, and, and this was um, the the CEO of Kroger, um, who owned was the parent company of one of my employers. Um, I remember in a meeting with him where he made the comment that um, you know if you if you think of Amazon. Amazon uh, shouldn't be called a retailer in large part because their retail business is actually a money losing business. Um, if you just look at their public you know, filings, their AWS and ads business generate far more profit than the entire business does as a whole. And as a result, their retail business is actually losing money. And in some sense, it's hard to call a business a retail business if in fact their core retail business actually loses money. But the comment that... Um, that Rodney had made to me was that how do we Kroger compete with the retailer that is charging under under cost in order to sell their goods unless we ourselves find alternative ways to generate mm-hmm. revenue and profits and what you'll find is virtually every major retailer now reports on these things called alternative revenue or alternative profits when they post their their earnings every quarter and in fact they've come to the same realization which is that retail may actually just be a means to an end and that the end may actually be better knowledge about your customer and how you can best monetize that knowledge in a way that keeps the customer wanting to keep engaging with you because you've made their lives in some way better wow okay well i thought about that but that's interesting. So it's it be, doesn't become about what you're selling uh, on a day-to-day basis. It's what you, how you can monetize, how you understand your your customers and satisfy their needs and add value to them. And that's, that's, exactly. that's a big wake-up call for, I think, a, a grocery, sort of a grocery store though. I mean, and I think it's one that most, it, most retailers have now gotten to. Mm. I think Amazon has forced the entire industry to catch up to the idea hmm. that alternative revenue is the it has to be a has to subsidize the retail business. So how would sort of the average grocery store chain who's you know brick and mortar, they're not really doing much online right now, what are some means that they're able to like what are what are what are other potential revenue streams for them that that they're not maybe following so today, um so insights is an obvious one, right? If you're a grocery store, you see a set of customers often, weekly, potentially even multiple times a week, mm-hmm. and you understand what they buy on a periodic basis. You understand when you're out of stock in something, what that option is replaced with, and that starts to give you information about a consumer's decision tree, uh, right? Uh, the consumer mm-hmm. switches from one type of one brand to another. That means that they're not very brand sensitive, or they switch from uh, you know, one gallon of milk to a half gallon. It means that th- that size doesn't typically matter to them. They mm-hmm. just, they consume milk, they'll buy whatever they can. They might be price sensitive. So there's insights about consumers by category of product that you sell mm-hmm. that I think is the first, uh, you know, so bucket helps them for- become better stockers of what people want and follow trends, 
which is what I would assume or what I think most people assume they're using, able to leverage the information for to be better, better at doing what they're already doing. I think I think that's exactly okay. right. And and again, an example of how that is made easier for the user, for the consumer, is that if I walk into a grocery store and I'm in the milk aisle, I see all of the whole organic milks next to each other. So that if you're out of one, I simply look three inches to the right and I find another one. It's 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 replacement versus having Mm -hmm. to shift six feet over to find another organic whole milk if you organized by brand, for instance. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the soup aisle, you might want to organize by brand because people are loyal to their Campbell's or they're loyal to their Progresso, et cetera. And then within Campbell's, you've got Chunky and regular. Within Chunky, you've got Campbell's is like that in most stores. All their different suits all right next to each other. They have that red display oftentimes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so that's that's the first area is the mm-hmm. insights because it, it ultimately should make it easier for the consumer to find the products that they're looking for at the at the price that they want to pay for, etc. Um, advertising becomes a big component in all of this. So, advertising at the end of the day, the closer an advertisement can be to the point of sale, the more valuable it is. That is where the consumer's mind can be changed most, you know, most easily. So an ad placed in a physical store on the shelf is always going to be more valuable than an ad on television that I watched the night before I visit the grocery store. Um, And so a retailer has access to a set of impressions, a set of people visiting a grocery store Mm -hmm. that are looking to purchase something and therefore can be convinced to try new brands or to buy more of the brand that they're loyal to. And that advertising ultimately does migrate to online as more and more stores have an e-commerce presence uh, and, and uh, you know, associated things like that. And so I think advertising is another big area. And frankly, at that point, you can start to argue that retail might be no different than the entertainment industry um, in that broadcast television is fully supported by advertising it's no different than the print mm-hmm. magazine newspaper industry in that these industries are often mostly supported by advertising. Yes, some subscription revenue, but mostly advertising. And that what you're looking at here is that advertisers and therefore consumer attention become the currency that everyone plays in. And everything we do, whatever industry you're in, is simply a mechanism to try to aggregate consumer attention so that you can ultimately advertise against that. Retail is no different. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's uh, so the brands that are in the stores, there's going to be, and there probably already is, I mean, there already is, but sort of a battle for who's going to get more access to share their brands in, in unique, interesting ways. A couple of years ago, now when you check out at least the grocery store that I was at this morning, they gave me a couple of coupons that printed mm-hmm. out. And it's remarkably based on, I think, what I did not buy. But they're thinking, this guy, hey, he hasn't bought this in a while. And I hadn't bought this in a while. Uh, and those were coupons for that. And I was like, oh, yeah. wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So, but yep. yeah, and, once, and the better we get at using the information, it can be in the store. It can be on our computer. It could be through subscription services. I mean, who knows, I suspect. That's that's exactly right. You know, another um, interesting story again from from Kroger is uh, I think Kroger maybe a year ago, so maybe numbers might be slightly higher, but a year ago they have roughly ten million subscribe ten ten million customers come through their store every week. Um, if you compared that to uh, TV shows, I believe there are only 
roughly three to five TV shows in any given week that can claim more than 10 million viewers. And so the argument being made is a commercial on Sunday night football um, may be the only advertising investment that is better than an advertisement in a Kroger store because a Kroger store actually sees 10 million people you know, or across the Kroger stores would see more than 10 million impressions over the course of the week. And mm. as we start to think about it that mm. way, we understand inherently the notion of television commercials, that it's an advertisement. It pays for the free uh, content that I consume. We understand that maybe to a lesser extent, but similarly on the Internet. Um, in that I, you know, I get my news from wherever I get my news because it's supported through advertising. Um, I think we're beginning to understand that there similar conversations can take place about brick and mortar, real world, uh, uh, you know, tactile objects, right? A physical store uh, and other things along those lines. Well, so I'm I'm just smiling myself. I think about a conversation I had with a, uh, I believe uh, it was a grocery is a grocery store manager who and I've had this conversation multiple times and they're always complaining about well we operate on razor thin margins. And your <laughs> argument is yes, your part of the business does. That's exactly and, right. But thinking big to tie it back to your original conversation, right? Uh or or original piece of this, a lot of these grocery store chains are beginning to think bigger and they recognize their business model can't be solely based on just groceries or else they will be out of business potentially, but there are other ways. Exactly right. I think you make a good point. I and mean, this is, this is the one place where it used to be that people would go to the shopping mall a lot. And sometimes they still do, but grocery stores are in there every single week. Multiple. That's right. That's exactly right. That's, that's what yep. brings us together in communities. That You're exactly right. It's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that also introduces an, an advertising interest in that it's not just the Cokes and Pepsis and Nestle's and you know Kraft Heinz that advertise in a grocery store. The local dentist could advertise in the grocery store. The elementary school could celebrate the teacher of the year. But these are all opportunities for the grocery store to become the the town square, you know, or or, or continue its its um, its role as the town square. I suspect that you've cornered the market on grocery stores based on your insights here. <laughs> We um we work a lot with them for yeah. sure. Well, and it, it's a it's a fascinating space because there's so much data being collected. Consumers interact with the grocery store so frequently, you can see changes in behavior very quickly. So I find it I find it an amazing space to play in. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to bidfanning.com slash insight. Move the conversation forward just a little bit here. You're known to have said this expression that that doesn't make sense is the only expression that doesn't make sense. What do you mean by that? And why is that so important for your team and other leaders to understand? So, um, you know, for anybody that's ever taken an economics class, you always begin every statement with assuming rational humans or assuming rational beings. Hmm. Um, if we make the assumption that we're all rational, anything I do makes sense to me. Anything you do makes sense to you. And so when I say when you do something and my response to that is that doesn't make sense, that's an incorrect statement. It does make sense to you. And so what I really mean is that doesn't make sense to me. And, uh, and I, I impress this upon my team often in that just the addition of those two words to me hmm. 
changes the expression uh, that doesn't make sense to me from being one that's quite aggressive, that's uh, a bit of a, you know, you are not smart for having said what you just said. Like you're a you bad are now explainer. On the so exactly. I, you are now on the defensive to explain to me why oh. your idea has any merit in this discussion. Instead, it becomes a conversation of, you know what, I'm, I don't fully understand where you're coming from. It's on me to understand where you're coming from. So can you please explain it to me? Hmm. And what I find is one, it introduces a conversation rather than a sort of a defensive uh, reaction. And two, it oftentimes is the way in which you ultimately solve a problem. Because let's face it, even with the sort of polarizing culture that we live in today, we all have some very basic things that we can all probably agree on. We all love our kids. We all you know, want to create a better world in the future. We just disagree on what the view of a future better world looks like. If we could begin to have the conversations about what you're doing doesn't make sense to me, can you explain that to me? I feel like, you know, we're not going to solve world. I'm not going to solve world peace, but I can certainly solve mm -hmm. a disagreement at work if I can get two people speaking to each other along the lines of, I'm eager to understand where you're coming from. And so, again, this expression that I use oftentimes, whenever I hear someone say that doesn't make sense, that's actually the expression that doesn't make sense. You're like, say to what me, you really mean. put to me. So, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you if you go to your Twitter feed, it might just be like all these expressions and you're like, you didn't put to me on there. You know, it's like going in like Switzerland. We're going in neutral on this. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not judging what you're saying. I just don't understand. And right. I think that, I think it's, I think it's a great place to invite someone to try to double down. Sometimes people are explaining things. They maybe haven't thought it through as much. And by giving yeah. them that safe space, you know, you're letting them think through it and hopefully communicating more effectively. And I can see this really coming in being very useful with a boss or with a board when the power dynamic um when, when you're on the bottom side of the power dynamic in the relationship i think it's a and i'm including parents out there <laughs> whose parent you know the kids are running the show sometimes perhaps yeah, and when correct. they come to them and say to me doesn't correct. make sense to me that's exactly right so let's see here. When when's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career, and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Uh, it's a long list. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, maybe you pick think, a favorite. Uh, yeah, you know what? So um, I had, I guess, the fortune and misfortune of. Um, joining a company out of graduate school uh, that was at the height of the dot-com boom uh, in the late 90s. And uh, the, the company went public in 98 after I joined. And uh, first 18 months, I think the stock price increased 50-fold. Um, not 50%, 50-fold. This was a sort of the, the wow. just a ridiculous time to, to, to be part of the dot-com boom. And then we ended up... Um, uh, it, it came out that we had uh, uh, recognized revenue incorrectly, and uh, I, I was a you know 22, 23 year old kid had no idea what was going on, um, but watched a set of you know options that had been granted to me that on paper would have given me I don't know something near retirement in the in my early twenties to watching ninety nine point eight percent of that value go away over the course of the oh. next eighteen months. Painful. And um, and so, yeah, there's misfortune for obvious reasons. Um, but I think there was a there's a lot to be learned from it. And I think a few things that that have really struck me over time. One, 
um, diversify. Uh, that was a, a key lesson, and I it, it becomes a, a big part of of the way in which I think. Um, not just in my financial portfolio, but even in the way in which I think about business, I like to have many bets at any point in time. I look mm -hmm. after our, the product organization here at IRI, and um, I am probably accused of having too many things going on more often than than the opposite. Because having multiple products that you're going in on, because exactly you don't right. always know. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then I think the other key learning for me is... Um, things don't usually come easily. Uh, and when they do, you should be highly suspicious um, that we need to work to do to, you know, you, you need to put in the work to get the to get the outcome you're looking for. And I think that's been a lesson. I'm not sure I I'm not sure I necessarily learned it for the first time then, but it was clearly reinforced. And I think it's a lesson I you know, makes me a better father, makes me hopefully a better boss, um, makes me a better employee uh, in terms of just recognizing that things don't come easily um, and, and you've got to work to get those things that, that you want. What are three success strategies that all employees need to understand? You definitely gave us one on Diversify there to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've probably shared a couple. Um, you know, empathy is is a, is a, is a big one. Um, you know, the, the customer always being first, um, right. And, and remembering that, you know, the customers who we work for, um, I think that the last one that I would probably focus on is, um, is that we are all innovators. Um, and I, and I say this, I, I make a point to try to meet with every new employee that starts on my team. Um, as the team grows, I start to do it in, in kind of groups of three or four at a time. Um, but the message I really want to deliver to them is, um, especially as a new employee, we hired you because you know something that we don't yet know inside the company, which makes you an expert at something. And so rather than thinking of yourself as because I'm a new employee, put my head down, I'm in learning mode, I'm going to just listen and take everything I can in. I want you to provide feedback. Do not assume that every process we have in the company, every product we've built was built after painstaking analysis of all of our options and we found the perfect option. As you and I both know, many times in an organization, things just grow and take on a life of their own. And before you know it, you have a process that could have been improved. No one just took the time to do it. And the people most likely to point that out are those that are experiencing the process for the first time. Mm. And so I, I really try to impress upon people that while you might be new, please appreciate that in every meeting you sit in, you know more about something than everyone else in that room. Figure out what that is. And that's the way in which you're going to contribute to that meeting and then ultimately to this to this team. And I think that's a message I, I would love to, you know, it's a message I remind myself of when I'm in a meeting with our board, for instance, that I wouldn't be invited to this conversation if they didn't consider me to be the expert in the thing that I'm presenting on. And as a result, I think that helps me, uh, you know, avoid any sort of uh, concern or imposter syndrome or any of the things that I think can otherwise uh, you know, fall on, on 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 people that don't carry that confidence into the conversations that they're brought into. Wow, such a great one to to wind this up on because I think a lot of new leaders, whether they're new to the company or whether they're just new to a meeting, they do feel like they're just there to observe. And certainly, perhaps mm -hmm. that's the case. But you're really giving them, no matter the situation, a call to action, another reason for being there than just observation. You've got something of value to offer. And that's why you're there. Assume that. And your key in that, in that new moment is to figure out what that is. That's exactly Through the right. observation, understand what you can contribute 
And, and I really like that. I think it's it's a great way too for leaders to get their team up to speed more by giving them that specific charge. I think you'll accelerate their growth and certainly uh, the that of the team and the overall organization. And Shad, this has been a great interview today and a lot of fun. What what's your parting thought for listeners? You know, um, I think there's a lot of things here. I won't maybe repeat anything I've said already. I um, I started a habit uh, at the beginning of COVID, maybe three months in, on the advice of a friend who said, you know, we live our entire lives trying to gain control over our environment. I mean, you can go back to a a foundational element of we we build shelters to to shield our to control the weather. We 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 make money to control our food source and you know the other things that matter to us and and covid was a challenge for everybody because no matter what world of control you had built you certainly you 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 lost control in that moment mm-hmm. you didn't have control over your own health which let's face it is a pretty foundational element for all of us and 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 um so the the, the advice was figure out what you can control and and since then I have found um, I before I go to bed every night I pick um, a, a, a puzzle a, a game of some sort um, and solve it uh, and so whether that's Wordle or the New York Times you know mini crossword uh, mm-hmm. or or a, a Sudoku or something mm-hmm. because it's what allows me to go to bed saying I I solved it I accomplished it I I, I figured something out today. Um, one would hope that the the rest of my day consists of a lot of options to opportunities to say that I solved something, but just in case, um, it's really nice to have the last thing I do before I go to bed be something I control, and that is the the solving of some sort of a puzzle, some accomplishment that I can I can hang my hat on. So, if if that can be helpful to anyone else, I'd, I'd strongly recommend turning that into a habit. It takes five extra minutes before the the night is over, and it's a good way to end the day. Yeah, and a great and a great book into this interview because we tar- talked about thinking big, the bigger vision. And it can take years to get there. But it's important to give yourself something that meaning of that, that immediate gratification of satisfaction of completion to help help keep you running. It's a great point. Yep. I completely agree with that. All right. Thanks a shot. Thank you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.